Lewis Butler sits down with us. He is an architect who is a legend here in San Francisco, a legend in Northern California. He's gonna help us solve problems and make things beautiful in his world, in his words. I'm just going to drill in okay. and start asking really epic questions, hopefully. But I hosted a panel years or several years ago with a, the creative force uh, named Alonzo King. And I asked him, in his discipline in ballet, is there anything, any rules he breaks? And he said, well, he finally had to come up with one because it took him a while. And he said that sometimes ballet doesn't want to put the posterior towards the audience. But he says, I do, because it's a beautiful part of the body and the lines of the human you know, sc uh, sculpture. And do you have any rules you love to break, consistently break, in architecture? So there, I think there's a big difference between ballet and architecture. What I've seen from ballet training, it's rigorous, it's hard. You only do it if you're committed to that one pinnacle. Uh -huh. You might describe architecture as actually the reverse. The people who go into architecture, myself included, are probably people who are looking for a discipline that actually lacks discipline, uh, uh -huh. something that lacks rules, something that's a little bit freeform to start with, but still somehow congeals into a business model in the end, as opposed to being maybe an artist or a musician or something that's more artistic and further out. Uh -huh. So it's hard to come right out of the box and say, this is the rule I'm breaking, where the whole, when the whole reason I'm in it is because perhaps there aren't any rules and you get to forge your way in the first place. So. Uh, and I actually believe that that's still the case when, mm -hmm. you know, one of the nice things about having your own office is you start in the morning and you're not thinking about what the rule is. You're thinking about what do I get to do next? What would mm -hmm. be really fun to do next? What can I push next? Where can I get myself out of, of my comfort zone next and do some better thinking than I might if I'm in my comfort zone? So unfortunately, the structure of your question is rules and breaking rules. And the structure of my answer is what rules, yeah. how would I break one? All of them are broken. Or all of them aren't there. Right. So uh, now there are rules around what we do. There are building codes, there are budgets, there are mm -hmm. client expectations. And there are so many rules that mm -hmm. kind of descend on the practice after a while, it's almost best not to think about them because they're gonna come to roost and mm -hmm. you almost don't wanna get this kind of anticipatory anxiety like, oh my gosh, what do I do? When this happens, you almost want to stay free of that for a while and then just mm. let what happens, you know, happen. Making this a long answer, though, one other way to think about rules in architecture is uh -huh. how do I take a rule that constrains one person and use it to free what I want to do? So a, a classic example is the San Francisco Planning Code, which is so ominous to some people. It's right. so oppressive. It's so expensive to get through the process. We don't think about it that way. It's a complete attitude reversal. So there's taking a rule that somebody sees as a constraint, as something that might want to be broken, mm -hmm. and we don't do either. It's not a constraint, we won't break it, we'll simply turn it into something that's not a rule, but is an advantage because we're gonna think about it a way that perhaps somebody else hasn't thought about it. How many people do you think share that approach to the planning codes? Not very many. Yeah, that's really um, brave and tra uh, trailblazing. I probably shouldn't have even mentioned it because somebody else now is going to get the idea. No. So I, I've blown this interview. Robbie I've blown my whole business model. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually one of my questions was, you know, 
you kind of touched on the building department in San Francisco or New York City, and you know they play a role. What kind of, I guess, positive role do you think they've they've played in your view? So, just to nitpick a little bit, it's really the the authorities that govern what we do are divided into the planning department, who really govern what things look like and how big they are. And yeah. then the building department's really the engineering. Yeah. So. Our major point of inter- interface in terms of creativity is the planning department. So you're asking yeah. what role do they uh, role do they play? They they play a really important role, and I actually think the people in San Francisco do a very good job. I know the planners; they have a very, uh, I think, uh, kind of pure view in some cases of the city and where it, and where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we view them as our allies, not our our adversaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the planners in San Francisco, because they have a kind of fundamental interest in urbanism and progress do a better job than the planners on the peninsula who aren't viewing things quite at the same scale or time horizon. Mm -hmm. So I think when you think about the planning department in San Francisco, think about people who care a lot about what they do and have a vision for the city and are trying to get their flaws included. Mm -hmm. This is a a nice um, kind of refreshing discussion. Um, You know, like I work with the homeowners and, you know, they can't get something approved, so they're they're irritated and that's the way it goes. But um, but it was, you know, I keep mentioning Paris, but I was just there and it was kind of, everyone keeps asking me, how, how was it? And I haven't talked to them for like a week and uh, they just asked me this morning, somebody did. Uh, but because of the planning department in Paris, obviously they've kept their, their look. Right. You know, and that's the, do you think that's somewhat of the motivation of the current planning department and the heads? Or do they want to see innovation? And they want to see complementaries. So here's a, a numerical difference that you have to factor in before you go compare Paris or London or certainly Rome to San Francisco. Those cities are thousands of years old, and San Francisco, as we know it, is about 165 years old. So the post, the actual U.S. version of San Francisco dates back to 1849, and there's your you know 166, seven years old. That's not very much time. Mm-hmm. 167 years ago in Paris, you know, a lot of what we see was still there, if not most. So you're, you're dealing with two completely different, different things. The advantage that Paris has is that it has so much amazing historical architecture that you can really play off of that and you can play off it hard. You know, uh-huh. the Pompidou Center is an easy example, uh, but the Jean Nouvel building, the university building that's right there on the Seine, is another great one. There are many, many great examples of how you play modern architecture really hard off traditional architecture in Paris. Mm-hmm. Much different game in San Francisco. You just don't have that thousand-year-old depth to work sure. off of. And so it's actually harder. I was just in Auckland, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same age as San Francisco, and it was really interesting to see how they were trying to accomplish with modern architecture exactly what San Francisco is trying to accomplish with exactly the same age city with a lot of Victorian architecture too. Right. So, so to start out with, playing off a, an old Victorian that's from 1885, that's not, frankly, a lot of substance and architecture to work a modern concept off of, but it's about as much as, as, as we get. The mm-hmm. oldest building in San Francisco is Mission Dolores, that's 1776, mm-hmm. right? So that's the single oldest structure in the whole city. So that's mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously, we're not going to see a very modern building next to that anytime soon. But that just mm-hmm. gives you an idea of, uh, again, chronologically, what mm-hmm. we're dealing with here. Different game than Paris. Mm-hmm. And how have you seen your, your work change over the you know, course of your career? So I think one of the advantages of 
you know, you and I were talking before we, we, we got before, on the before air. Before we're live <laughs> exactly, with the, with the studio audience. Uh, and we were talking about the fact that we've done this for 30 years. Yeah. So yeah. The, the one thing that I kind of beat myself up uh, about every morning is why aren't we trying more? Why aren't we trying harder? Why aren't we doing things that you can do when you've been at it for 30 years uh, that you can't when you've been at it for one or two? There is a difference there. So I would say that we push a little harder uh, with our design ideas these days, especially the new ones. And that results in progress in that area in that we're doing five new ground up houses right now, three new ground up other buildings, and they're all uh, stylistically pushing a little bit against their neighborhood in a very respectful way. We're building a project on the last open lot of Telegraph Hill. It was a three-year mm -hmm. battle. Back to your first question about the plan department. You have Is that to, the tiered? That's the tiered. Buildings like three kind of homes? They're three townhomes with a little cottage in the back. Okay. And we were fought by the Telegraph Hill Dwellers yeah. Association for three years. Again, I call that something you just have to do to build a building. A lot of people would call yeah. that unfair. Yeah. Uh, we won. It's getting built. It starts in about a month. And it's definitely not something you've seen on Telegraph Hill before. Right. But in my presentation to the Planning Commission, I basically said, look, there is a lot of Telegraph Hill scale and history being incorporated into this project, a lot. Mm -hmm. But it's being done with an eye looking forward, not backwards. So mm -hmm. to, to answer your question with, a, with fewer sentences, that's the kind of thing we're trying to do now that we didn't do as much before. When you're starting a business, you do things to start a business that are driven perhaps by the business. When you've been at it for 30 years, you start to feel a little bit more freedom and not, uh, not having to do those business things and looking more at what you really want to do. Yeah. And I plan to do this for quite a few more years. So mm. I'm looking forward to all the opportunities that come up that perhaps I haven't taken advantage of yet. What's the uh, project to date that you're so proud of? Which one really stands out or, or five? What, can you describe those to our our listeners? So that's always a dangerous question to the to an, for an architect because you never really want to get identified with one yeah. project, and yeah. that's not because you know some clients can listen to this and say, Cut "Hey, that what one. about mine?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, if um, you, are you cutting the whole question? Or you yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, so let me give you kind of a political. Uh, I'll give you a political answer. Sure. We're a proud. We're proud of a lot of projects all the time, right? Yeah. We, yeah, we do yeah. have our favorites. And I think, you know, that what I mentioned on Telegraph Hill, I'm really proud of that. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of work in that project. There's a lot of good thinking in that project. There's a lot of good design in that project. Uh, and I am really excited about seeing it getting built. So I'll commit. That's my favorite right now. There you mm -hmm. go. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I just finished a friend's house and it was, you know, we ended up telling the same story with two different sets of friends at the same event. But he really did bring ideas to me. And they were just flushed out a little bit sharp. They were sharpened up a little bit. And then that was really his idea with our twist on it. And that's to date probably the one we photographed. I kind of think the photograph is really a big part of the, the artistry. Because like how it really um, presents long term is right. that, that actual photograph. But that's my favorite at the moment. You know, I, I probably have a new two every year, you know. And that's good. And Frank Lloyd Wright said the next one was always his favorite. Right? <laughs> that's that, a good one. Yeah, it's a good Remember one. That. There, there's a lot of good ways to answer that question yeah. and not answer it at the same time. <laughs> uh, but you brought up a, a fun point that's probably not on your agenda, which is the famous architectural photographer Julius Schulman photographed all those uh, Palm Springs buildings by uh, Richard Neutra and, um, and others. 
and it's often thought that his photography of that architecture is what that architecture is because some people mm -hmm. have seen more of the photography than have ever seen the building. So it's those canonical black and white shots that are the actual architectural memory, in fact, of those buildings, not the buildings themselves. So when you say the photograph is something you want to remember, that's kind of a fun topic, too. You're getting into how photographs transport architecture rather than the architecture mm -hmm. themselves. Not a question you asked, but I thought I'd throw that in. Yeah, how many projects do you get to photograph a year? Probably five, six, seven. Yeah. More now than ever. And then what, um, are you on sites? Do you get really in the weeds? I, it's quite structured, actually. I try to have a kind of a, a meeting of the minds with the photographer and say, this is what I really want you to get. Mm-hmm. And when I say to the photographer, I want you to get this, it's really one, two, three, four things. It's not 12 things. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are the kind of, you know, heroic architecture shots that I'm mm -hmm. after. What really conveys what we were thinking when we designed this building? Uh, more often than not, they're on the exterior, but often they're on the interior, too. Then after that, I let my staff and the photographer take over and say, OK, what else do we want to get out of this? Because mm -hmm. we like a collaboration. Uh, in the photo process. I found that if I dictate all the shots, it's actually not as good as if I let the, the other artists in the room start to take over after a while. Mm -hmm. So you're doing more ground-up construction right now, it sounds like, or more than other years? In the city. In the city. A lot of ground-up outside the city, but more ground-up yeah. in the city, yes, which is very hard to do. It involves yeah. demolitions, which in San Francisco is referred to as the D word. No one wants to hear no. about a, a remodel, demolition. Lewis. Yes. Well, and so, sometimes <laughs> we do. A, sometimes we demolish a house and call it a remodel, yeah. but that's not that easy to do anymore. Um, uh, here's a question I was thinking about. I looked online on your beautiful website, and I was looking at your office space. I and mean, we designed this office space in like 2011, 2012, and I didn't get a lot of input from anybody. I just kind of, what do we need? And I tried to make this as, as useful as possible. What's What's a busy architecture office need? And how, does your, how did you design your office? Because you just moved uh, four or five years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago. Two and a half, exactly. So that's a great question. Uh, I, what we did is we had an office competition in the office for the new really? office. Three schemes were presented. And I had cute labels for the schemes. One, one I called the Russian Revolution because the czar, who was me, was somehow killed in the end and transported off to some location that I didn't like. One I called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood because it seemed like the whole office was designed to kind of come in and put on shoes and a sweater and then take them off someplace else and put on something new. Yeah. It was kind of a cool concept. I forget what I called the third one. And in the end, we actually merged those three ideas into one idea. Mm -hmm. It probably ended up being more Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood than a Russian Revolution, which uh -huh. was good for me. But in that description, there <laughs> is this uh, kind of narrative around the office and, and way you can walk through it where different things are happening at different places. And sometimes we have a meeting at, at a stand-up desk. Sometimes we have it in a conference room. Sometimes we have it in the materials library. And however the mood hits us, we just kind of go over there and, and hang over out. Here. Yeah. How about we go... Stay here. We don't change our clothes, though. We keep the same clothes on. So <laughs> I didn't think of the, the, the music. Who are the people in your name? You got it. Something like that. Yeah, you, you can do that. I'm not going to. But th that was very good, yes. Uh, and it's a wide open office. And mm -hmm. it, we bring in as much light as we possibly can. There's music playing all the time. 
it's probably a little bit loud. We don't uh, have a brooding, quiet, thoughtful office. We have kind of a little bit mm. of a raucous. What's the music? Who, who decides? Whatever the playlist is, is that who's in charge at that time. Who's in charge? Uh, there's two or three employees that tend to take that over. Uh, Do you ever say like enough with Beyonce or uh, enough with Sinead O'Connor? I, if I were to do that, I, I would, I would, <laughs> or whoever. Your, your workmate is, I think, saying yes. No. No. I think she's ready to offer enough plus 10 more artist names. But uh-huh. uh, the, if I were to do that, it might be in a subtle little email or, or oh. you know, oh. who's Bail playing Sebastian. this? Yeah. Bailey and Sebastian was playing yesterday. And um, I think I, I had to speak up. And I just was striking me wrong. I yeah. You're the boss. You get to do that. Uh, I, I will say two, two favorite times I have in the office. One is Monday, and I get there about 8, uh, 8.15, and it's quiet. There's about three or four of us there. And then that quiet turns into a little bit of a murmur or a rumble, and then that turns in, then some music starts, and then the chatting starts, and then by 9, 9 30, 10, you get this more of a, of a din or a ruckus going on. And I, and I love that idea of of this machine starting up slowly yeah, and yeah. starting to spin and spin. And then at 11 o'clock, we have our staff meeting. We all get together in one room. We go over every single project, which I also really enjoy. We every day? Or no, every Monday morning? Every Monday morning. Yeah. yeah. Every single project. Doesn't matter how small or how big, we go through the whole thing. Uh, and then I also like Friday afternoons because uh, the office starts drinking beer usually about 3.30, 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. And I always forget about that. And I'm in the office. Can we merge? We can merge. (laughs) And then so on Friday afternoon, I'm going, why are people getting so happy? It's Friday afternoon. Then I realize there's all this, these, these, uh, this kind of craft beer sitting around. Craft beer sitting around and and ciders and stuff. I go, oh, that's right. That's what happens on a Friday afternoon. So that's another favorite part. So how did you grow the office? You you did start it with your wife um, originally, right? Right. Yeah. And then you were just explaining off air that you have, is it 30 teammates? Uh, well, we have 26 total. 26, okay. And, you know, and then you also explained that you, you've you know, seen it as small and, and it's grown. Any advice you give architects who are listening and other designers who might have a complimentary business? How what, did you keep it growing? Well, I'm not afraid of size and change. Uh, I like the larger office. I like what you can do with a larger office. I know lots of architects that decide that 12 is right or 8 is right or mm-hmm. 16 is right and they take they limit the number of projects they they take and, mm-hmm. and do that so so philosophically i'm in I, i'm not afraid of size not afraid of growth not afraid of delegating things to other people which you have to do to get to that size yeah. obviously yeah. so one reason i really like the uh 26 person size or any size in and around there is that uh, we get very strong teams of people and they can work on projects together and be very effective. I should mention one thing, and I'm remiss of not bringing this up before. I have six employees that have been with me over 13 years and one 17 almost and one even 20 with breaks uh, for raising a family. Mm-hmm. You, it's really hard to run an office that size if you don't have people that have been there for a long time and really know what they're doing. That's good so, advice. I mean, that's good uh, to note. It's also very hard to do. Yeah. If you were to do an immediate survey of other architecture firms, you would not find that. Certainly mm-hmm. not in the residential side where we are and not at our size. It well, you can pat yourself on the back because that's not something easy to do, like you said, but there's a reason they're sticking around. You have a good thing going. They, they like being around you, I'm sure. And I like them. Yeah. And we have a very good time together. And, uh, and we have a very strong work ethic, but we're, it's a very kind of jovial, friendly atmosphere in the office. So... 
key thing is if you're going to get big and that's what you want to do, you have to do it with people that have been around for a while that know what they're doing. Um, I'm going to spin this back around to more like historical, um, you know, where your work came from. What was your house like growing up? And did, did you, do you ever kind of pull from that? Well, I'll tell you what I do pull from. So quick history there. I was born in San Francisco, but my dad at the age of 33 decided to leave a very large law firm. He has what I call, had, had what I call a early life crisis. Mm-hmm. During the Peace Corps in 1960, we all went to Malaysia. So, That's cool. So I had this, you know, when you get on a plane, and those were propeller planes back then, and head west to uh, Hawaii and then Malaysia, you know something's going on. You're four years old, and like, wow, this is not San Francisco. Your brothers and sisters, too? Or just uh, older sister went with me. Younger uh-huh. sister came later when we got back. So uh, then I came back to San Francisco. Then we lived in D.C. Then I came back to San Francisco. Then we lived. Uh, then I went, went to boarding school, went to college on the West Coast, college on the East Coast, settled back West Coast. So I was back and forth a lot, in one case internationally, and certainly East-West quite a few times. Yeah. There are two houses that right. were influential to me, but they're not ones that I grew up in. Both belong to grandparents. So my grandmother oh. had a very well-known William Worcester House in Santa Cruz called the Butler House. It was a beautiful courtyard house, the only one he ever did in that particular manner. Uh, and you can look it up. Beautiful floor plan, very relaxed house. Mm-hmm. It's still there. It's been modified. And my other grandparents down in Southern California had a house designed by Lillian Rice. And Lillian Rice was a woman architect when there were about three. Mm-hmm. Uh, she unfortunately was short-lived or short-lived, but she did a lot of architecture in the Rancho Santa Fe and Escondido area of Southern California. And they had a beautiful Lillian Rice house, uh, relaxed, stucco, one-story, what they call ranch house, in that it really was an early California stucco ranch house. And that relaxed kind of uh, agricultural style house had a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that if you and I were to go through our website, you would see that house sneaking in and out of projects all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, what is your favorite part of the architectural process? I like the whole thing. Uh, Good answer. I also like the whole, well, not the architect, but the design process. But yeah. No, I like, I like I the like whole thing. So, so early on, I worked as a carpenter. And then I, uh, with a couple of friends, started a construction company and designed and built two houses before I was 22 years old. And I, you know, the people that hired us to do that must have been brave, very brave, very cheap or something. But <laughs> it was very successful. In one case, uh, the house is still there. The other one was demolished after a while because a very wealthy guy bought the property. Uh-huh. And then one summer I worked for a plumbing and heating firm. Uh-huh. Uh, my first degree was in structural engineering. And then I went to architecture school after working for a year, my only year working for an architect ever for William Turnbull Associates, who was kind of in his prime in the late 70s. Right. So I had picked up a lot of pieces, the little building blocks, literally building blocks of architecture on the way in. Mm-hmm. And uh, in graduate school at Harvard, we, it was a design only program. So that was great. I kind of got to cast aside all of these practical things I'd learned and go into kind of a design only mm-hmm. mentality. But as a result, there isn't a lot about what I just described to you, if anything, that I don't enjoy. That was the whole idea. The whole idea, let's just get right down to the basic point here. The whole idea was to do something I like doing. The idea yeah. was not to make money. The idea was not to try to you know, satisfy someone's expectations or not. The whole idea was to do something that I enjoyed doing with, you know, for the obvious reasons. Yeah. 
you must find sometimes when people are starting off in architecture, maybe they have just come from the design process alone. They don't have much practicals. Sure. That they're unable to design something that can easily be built. I mean, to be, I guess, straight to the point. Do you, uh, you know, that's what you learned being a carpenter and a bit of a plumber. You kind of learned all this from the ground up. Do you think that that should be part of a curriculum? It is actually kind of built into European curriculum, I think. And, and some, we have an employee from um, Rice University. They ask their or require that their students uh, work for a year for an architect and then go back to school. That's not quite the same as the more practical uh, building mm -hmm. experience, although I think in Europe they do have a way of rolling that in. I, I think the way the educational system in the U.S. has kind of presented architecture to all of us who want to try to learn it is that the structure is there in different ways. Cal Poly is very, very different from, uh, from Harvard, for instance. Cal Poly produces architects who really practically know what's going on. Harvard really doesn't produce architects that practically mm. know, know the practical aspects of the, of the profession. But then many law schools don't produce lawyers that understand the practical aspects of law. You, you have sure. to fill that in on your own. So like many things in life, it's up to the individual to figure out what the program's offering, what they're not going to get as they go through it and fill in other, in other ways. Mm -hmm. And if you don't fill in, you know, that's fine, but, uh, and that's kind of up to you, but it, it, no one program is going to teach you everything. That, that's a very easy statement to make. Right. You, the individual is going to have to make up for that. When you hire somebody new uh, and they're interning with you, perhaps and then they turn into a junior staff member, um, do you have any rigor that you put them through to kind of teach them some of those practicals? We like to think we do, but we also have a very entrepreneurial office. Uh, it, it, there's a little bit of a, of a, uh, a kind of a paradox. On one hand, our office runs in almost a militaristic way because we're so focused on getting things done and, mm -hmm. and needing to get them done. On the other hand, we run kind of like a startup where people have ideas and those ideas are are allowed to get into the final product, whether they come from the boss or people lower down yeah, in, the, yeah. in the structure. So, and we like that. We like yeah, that yeah. paradox. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we have a very kind of, we have an entrepreneurial program kind of built into the office too, where people are encouraged to feel like they are an office within an office. So we have this kind of complex, not, not kind of single uh, structure, but more of a complex structure. Um, so someone comes into the office for the first time, depending on their experience, we may handle uh, how we bring them in a, a different way. Ideally, we like to have them work on one project in a steady way and uh -huh. get them settled, but that doesn't always happen. One other thing I should mention is that we have, I think, a little bit of a unusual hiring uh, technique in that we look for people that have backgrounds that may not be the typical backgrounds. So we almost have this architecture rescue program going where we find <laughs> architects that maybe didn't get jobs because somebody didn't see the perfect resume and we see something that could be really pretty pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and we've, uh, I think, been fairly successful uh, in hiring. Hiring's tough, by the way. Hiring's hard. Sure. Do you mean even the a background like somebody's from Malaysia or somebody's from Trenton, Missouri, a little town northeast of Kansas City? Just throwing the town out there <laughs> so <laughs> I mean do you also look for like varied backgrounds and not just from uh, San Francisco because sometimes I want to get uh, a new staff member who has experience working in San Francisco because it's so much different than 
even San Jose. Now, we are not ge geographically limited. We're, we're all over the, less all over the world these days, although we just hired a person from Syria, so, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, and ideally, the rest of his family gets here soon. We'll see how that goes. So we're-, we're Today, you know, yes? Uh, Today is what, the eighth? No. Yeah, we're, <laughs> my politics are pretty simple. You know, I want them to be able to come here and yeah. we have a Syrian employee. So uh, the, uh, but we, less all over the world these days and, but certainly all over the country, absolutely all over the country, yeah. East Coast, Midwest, uh, Southeast, up and down California. No, no, no uh, Canada, actually one Canadian. Yeah. Uh, no, oh, uh, someone from China. Mm -hmm. So actually quite a bit of international. But we don't think about it that way. It's, it's all a person to us. And mm -hmm. if we think they fit, then, then we hire them. Mm -hmm. um, and, but you work mostly in Northern California, right? Most of your projects? I would say a third of our work we can walk to from the office, if not almost half. Jeez, you've got to figure it out, Lewis. Uh, well, a walk lot of people the... wouldn't like that, but, you know, it's just turned out that way. And then there's a Marin kind of uh, bundle of five, six, seven projects, including Sonoma, and there's a Peninsula bundle of five, six, seven. A little bit of out-of-state stuff starting to present itself, but we're, we're, we're pretty local in that respect. And then I also saw that you designed for Stanford Ronald McDonald House. Yes, that was Reba Jones, who's worked for me for a long time. Uh -huh. And uh, that was a project that she did, obviously, to help Ronald McDonald House. That was, was that great. the new one? Just The one in Palo Alto, yeah, <clears throat> right uh, by the Stanford Shopping Center. Yeah, um, a year ago it opened. Exactly. Yeah, we did yeah. three rooms there for the furnishing. Oh, I did didn't. Did you do one big space? You did the whole big we structure. Did, we did two or three rooms. One, The one I remember best was the kids' room. Uh -huh. That basically had a kind of a, a kids exuberant, you know, mm -hmm. theme to it. Again, mm -hmm. as you and I discussed before we went uh, live, a lot of work goes into those things. Yeah, yeah. That, that year we also did the showcase house. Yeah, we did that. I remodeled my friend's house because he was had um, he was ill. Yep. You know, I was like Mister Philanthropy, but spelled S C H L A R B. Yeah. The only thing you left out is you should have remodeled your own house in the middle of it just to have driven yourself <laughs> completely crazy. Yeah. Do you move much or do you stay in the same house? Uh, we've been in the same house, my wife and I, since we moved in in April of 91. And we're still there. Yeah. Do you do much work, like keep changing it or steady it, as she goes? I, we gutted it before we moved in. Yeah. Because I wanted to experience a true financial disaster personally. <laughs> so I could empathize with my clients. Right, right. When I, I did a great job. <laughs> I went through the whole thing. Uh, it turned out to be the smartest thing we ever did. Because uh -huh. uh, obviously San Francisco real estate value <laughs> takes care of itself. And uh, we've tweaked it uh, probably three or four times uh, since. Tweak meaning, you know, a real remodel, not just, uh, you know, redecorating. But we like it there. We're going to be there for a long time. It's on the same block as the Full House House, which oh. is also the Fuller House House now. They've revived that show. Oh, right. So we get 500 people a day on our block of Broderick Street between Pine and Bush going to see the Full House House, still looking for the Olsen twins in the case oh. of some of the kids. They're uh, older now. Do they know that? It's, you cannot break those 10-year-old's heart by telling them that the Olsen twins don't live in that house anymore. Yeah. So wait, so you were a couple of blocks away? So that's, um, uh, you're several blocks. No, we're Definitely. on the same side of the same block oh, wow. of that house. Oh, wow. And the producer of the original Full House show and the Fuller House show just bought the house. So no. it's even going to become more of a theme are they, already. are they filming kind of from that same styled set? Is it meant to be that house still? He hasn't been really clear about what his 
ultimate goal is. Oh, right. right. But they want to further but identify mean, that house with that show. But Fuller House is the same house as Full House on set. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, didn't know that. The, the houses really never were on set. This house that has 500 visitors a day. Yeah. Just is shown for you know three quarters of a second in the opening yeah. aspect of the photograph. show. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's that's amazing. But you lived on the East Coast. Uh, when I just, was in, um, uh, let's see, well, age twelve to fourteen, I lived on the East okay. Coast, and then again, I was in boarding school from sixteen to eighteen on the East okay. Coast, and any, then in graduate school from twenty three to twenty six. Any influence you brought from kind of living there? Oh, think? for sure. Yeah. yeah. My wife is from Southern Maine. Uh-huh. Uh, and in fact, we seriously considered living on the East Coast rather than coming back to, to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And after we, school? After Did school. Did you guys meet at, We uh, met in graduate, graduate school, school yeah. got married afterwards, and, and then uh, spent about uh, a month and a half in Europe and then came back to the West Coast. It was a great period of time. I'd like to do it again sometime. Not suggesting I'd remarry. Just the whole fun <laughs> part can, of that. <laughs> just in case that looked like something. I, no, you, could have I a, you could have a, a second marriage. I'm mar- I've been married twice to the same woman. There you go. I had two weddings. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but really, that making that space in your life where you get to to, to you know be in Europe for six weeks without something you got to do after that. Mm-hmm. That was the fun part. Uh, so we've been here ever mm-hmm. since, but she's from Southern Maine. We used to spend a month every summer in Maine and Rhode Island and those, those classic kind of East Coast coastal summers, which are great. So if you look, for instance, at one of our oldest projects and still, if not one of maybe the most popular projects on our website, it's a house at Stinson Beach that actually uh, belongs to uh, my family. Mm-hmm. That's, you'll see a very heavy East Coast influence mm-hmm. in, uh, in that house. Uh, so your wife started writing uh, several years ago, right, and then um, you guys built the business uh, together. I started our team with my wife. She's our she's my co-conspirator mm-hmm. at Green Couch, and we since keep evolving. Um, you know, we are uh, something a little bit similar in that now we have two young children, and she focuses on that. It's busy. Uh, she didn't go write a book, but uh, she started doing that, which takes up a lot of time. What was it like building a business with your wife? So we had been in architecture school together for three years. It was a three and a half year program, but for three of those, we were pretty much you know, sitting near each other and, and obviously going out at some point. So it wasn't that new to be in an architectural environment together. In fact, that was what we knew, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not like you make a transition to doing that. You're already in the transition of practicing architecture, at least in school, and thinking about it with someone who's already doing that, and then you get married. So there's a little bit, it was already it's more in. seamless than you think, right. right? Sure. And actually, when we came out here, I started the office, and she was working for another office, and then she left the office, wow. and that's when we started the, the Butler Armston office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pretty quickly after that, we started to get work and, and have a few employees. Then she took a break when we had our first... Uh, child in 97 uh, sorry 87 and then took another break in 90 when our son was born and then started to work on projects for friends and not necessarily have a full-time presence in the office and then went on to write a novel uh-huh. so which turned out to be a lot more work than being an architect right so the uh, so so again there's no single big you know wrenching event should we do this or not or uh-huh. you're going to leave the office and what do I do now that none of that existed and again 
that's why you have your own office is you don't have to worry about th that stuff as much. The other thing I'll, I'll say is it's much easier to start a business when you're young than later on because when you're young you don't have kids you don't have a mortgage you don't have all this stuff yeah. you know you if get you, to make all these mistakes yeah, yeah. with consequences that don't really hurt that much later on it's a it's a kind of a headier decision yeah I and mean, can i share with you just a snippet because i think we have a similar story like we were 25 Trey and i when we started yeah and you know we, i don't think we could have gotten a job at any design studio like no one would hire us so we just started our own and that's it just evolved but we worked so much those first few years i mean you know 14 hour days and 12 hour days and we would see each other like three hours a day in the middle of it and if we didn't uh or, that's how it worked so we, you know we didn't get to clash all day we were kind of collaborating but only a little bit a part of the day and then of course see each other at night so it, it was um, it wasn't messy like sometimes people say it with working with your spouse. Right, right. You know? it's, people have different approaches to that. I mean, some people are very formal about it and some people are very free form about it. Mm -hmm. I think you guys were working way harder than we were though. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think we were working that hard. I'm exaggerated with 14. That's okay, it's not a good. 11, we did work a lot. My, my, my comment on something you just said was, uh, you know, the reason I started my own office is because it was very clear to me that I was incapable of being anybody else's employee. That, that was, wasn't going to happen, right? So, yeah. so it was kind of a one-choice decision. We also said, um, you know, we, we were 25 too, and if it, if it didn't work, we were like, okay, we'll just go get other jobs. Yeah. Was, there's nothing, to, there's no failure. It was just a big exercise and fun. I, hope, I, never, I hope it worked and it no, did. I never even had the thought about it not working. Uh -huh. that, 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 I, had, I had the failure is not an option approach. That's sure. That's better. N not really. I, I calm myself a lot of times by saying, you know, m maybe you just don't have any fear whatsoever, but I, I still, as back of my head, think, you know, what if it all falls apart? You know, and then I have to correct my, my thinking. And like, it's not going to fall apart. And one of the re ways I do that is I look back at the history how fun it's been and how, how it's really exceeded my expectations and what our work has been like and how much fun it's been. And, and I always, this is how I calm myself. I say, well, if it all went away, that was a good ride in itself. And then that grounds me and then helps me project, you know, for more fun, more adventures, more uh, goals, you know. I have a version. looking at it that way? I have a version of that, which is that... It, you know, the risks I take now don't seem like they're as big as the ones I used to take. Mm -hmm. This is a period of my professional life where I could take a lot more risk if I wanted to. So I'm trying to you know, head in that direction. But just, just to, to sympathize with what you just said, I have a very consistent sine wave uh, kind of pattern to how I think about uh, what I'm going to do or at my capa capacity for doing it daily, which is absolute fear, you know, from two to four in the morning absolute confidence that it, can, that it can get done once daylight arrives it's just uh, uh -huh. so i go from one one extreme to the other uh -huh. on every 24-hour cycle <laughs> not sure if that's healthy or not um you know it's, it's the system that works so what what do you think about what's the uh, what's your favorite room in your house and why so consistent with all the other frustrating answers i've given you to this kind of question uh -huh. we were very um focused on wanting every room in the house to work so even though there's only two of us in a house now that used to be occupied by four people okay. we use every room 
and we still use every room, and we have a reason for using every room. Uh So I have to say, though, that the one I like the best is the upstairs room at the front of the house, which is my wife's office where she does all her writing, and we tend to hang out there at night. And my addition to her writing studio, uh, care of an AV guy that I know, was to put in a 70-something-inch TV. Now, that was slightly controversial when I first suggested it, and I suggested it after I installed it, so it was already there. But <laughs> it was a suggestive it, it, approach. Look, there's my suggestion up there on the wall. So the, uh, but once it was installed, it was uh, a runaway hit. Oh, and really? so that has indeed added to the atmosphere of that writer's kind of special. What's normally running? Are you watching Jerry Springer uh, reruns? Or are you watching CNN? What are you watching? So we are watching movies. Movies, got it. Both current, and then ones that I read about in the New York Times that happened sometimes not that long ago, sometimes very long ago, like Uh um, Stanley Kubrick's first movie, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. which is called Fear and Destiny or something like that, about these uh, uh, soldiers that get caught behind enemy lines. It's really cool to see Stanley Kubrick's first movie. It's not very good, black and white, short, but, you know, the guy was a genius, and that was what he did first. So, worth seeing. Here's one more question. People often ask, they want to know where design's going. I get this question a lot. Or like, that's something people want to know. They want to see some forecasts from experts. What about you? Do you have any forecasts on you know, where architecture is going in the next five years, ten years? I haven't thought about this a lot, but I'm going to make a comparison, uh, which I just thought of. When people talk about technological progress... It's always amazing how much old technology doesn't go away, even though a lot of new technology is arriving all the time. So the demise of, you know, the printed word, magazines, radios, all these things was forecast so many times. We still have books. But we still have books. And we still have magazines. And there are still people watching network TV. I'm not sure how long that lasts. (laughs) On the other side of the list are Betamaxes and fax machines and uh, you know, other things that, that don't make it for good reasons. Mm-hmm. I think design's very similar. You're always going to be seeing new ideas. You're going to have the Zana Hadid. You're going to have these people who get out there and really think uh, in ways that haven't been uh, thought about before uh, about buildings. But you're going to have all the other kinds of thinking still in place at the same time. And I think that we'll lose certain things that weren't a good idea. I doubt you're going to see that Michael Graves, you know, 1980s postmodernism ever come back. You know, I just don't think or Charles Moore was in it, too, and uh, obviously a handful of others. I just don't think that will come back because mm-hmm. that it was kind of amazing that it even happened once. I don't think it'll happen twice. But you'll still have people practicing serious classical architecture, I think, decades mm-hmm. from now. You'll still have yeah. the Zana Hadiths, and you'll have everybody in between. So I like the idea that we don't have to forecast a single direction and got, get caught up in a single answer. I, I like the idea that we get to think about all of this marching ahead at the same time. I mean, there needs to be diversity in design, just like there needs to be diversity in all other areas of life. That, I think that's a healthy thing. You know how in London, historic neighborhoods, if they want to do a, an addition... I think it's probably written into their code, whereas classic house stays. Addition is a modern attachment. So right. you can kind of see old and see new. And that's pretty cool, actually. It gets photographed beautifully, I think. But do you, are, have you worked on any project where you kind of purposely do new building and new construction, where you kind of mash the 
historic architecture to this sharper edge contemporary? No question about it. Uh, so, actually, the San Francisco Planning Department approach is very aligned with the London approach that you just described. Uh -huh. Even though, again, in London, back to a, a, a previous uh, comment of mine, you're dealing with that older, older architecture. Mm -hmm. It's a brick townhouse, and they you tend to keep the Queen Anne front. In fact, a very famous British historian called uh, London and British architecture an architecture of Queen Anne fronts and Mary Jane behinds because, Jane. because the front is that stately yeah. coordinated look yeah. and the behind is a whatever. It's whatever the person did because mm -hmm. the back is not regulated. Mm -hmm. New York is that way. Uh, San Francisco is that way. Yeah. We often approach design uh, and the planning department does have this written into the way they evaluate it so that our new thing is very clearly distinguished from the old thing, mm -hmm. right down to a, a, a nice detail of how they seem together. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll approach it where our new thing is very much a background element to the old original building, and sometimes we'll approach it as our new addition being something that really kind of is in, a, in, a, is in kind of a loud dialogue with the original building, right? Mm -hmm. A little bit uh, more activity there. So it mm -hmm. really depends on the circumstances. But what you describe in London is the blueprint for how they are looking at things in San Francisco these days. Again, with that major difference that's, is that we don't have the age. That's for additions, right? right? But what about, do you ever do a ground up with that same approach because you like it? And then maybe melting them to, to the two together a little bit more. Like, you know how there's transitional interiors Right. A transitional exterior. We do that, uh, and we're doing a house in Seacliff that is very much that way, in that it's a new house in Seacliff, but it's referencing uh, houses built in Seacliff in the 50s that tend to be in a newer wave. So it's kind of the newest of a newer wave. Uh -huh. So it's more transitional in that it's not saying I'm, I'm necessarily 2000. You know, 17. Nor is it the part of the original 20th Seacliff development. Mm -hmm. It's in this other era, which mm -hmm. we find it's almost a got a Hollywood aspect to it. Uh, mm -hmm. Almost a. Where is it on? Uh, this is on Seacliff Avenue at Seacliff. Not built yet. Will get oh, built oh, okay. in the next year. But we're also doing a house in Seacliff, and our client is from um, Scandinavia. That's absolutely a minimalist stone glass. Looks nothing like anything in the neighborhood, and mm -hmm. that's in the design phase. And that's going to be a very interesting process because it's not something the city's ever had to evaluate in a neighborhood mm -hmm. in San Francisco, at least not Seacliff. This is there's very one, different. There's one that hit uh, some sort of board. I saw the placard up on Seacliff. Uh, gosh, what would it be? The 300 block or something? I mean, you know, it's only like three blocks long. Yeah. Right before you turn left to go to China Beach. That's ours. It's just right. Oh, I see your sign. Yeah. yeah. I live in the neighborhood close. Yeah. I'm going to be watching the whole thing. So we're doing about gleefully. Six, we're doing about six projects out in Seacliff. Seacliff is, is coming into, into its own a bit as a neighborhood because people have realized it's actually easy to commute from Seacliff to. Uh, and, and downtown? Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, yeah. It's, it's not so bad. Because there seems to be something going on down there. Yeah. Well, Lewis, it's a delight to have you here. And it's. Uh, Interesting. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it just as much as I have. Thank you. Well, thank you. Come no, again soon. Great. Yeah, I will. I'll come tomorrow. We'll do it again. Yes.